the National Archives podcast series, How to Turn a Tin Can into a TARDIS, presented by Mark Merrifield. Thank you for coming to um, this big idea. I should probably say up front that this isn't just my big idea. Um, There's actually a lot of people in government that I've met over the last sort of six months or so who are all thinking about the kind of things that I'm going to talk about for the next sort of half an hour or so, um, working on it, trying to kind of implement these, turn these into a reality, all, all quite independently of each other, and we sort of found each other through various metadata groups um, uh, and a sort of shared interest in, in technology geekery. And, uh, and I think when you have an idea like this that, that is popping up in different places at, at the same time from different people... Um, it's a good sign that the, this is an idea whose time is probably coming or, or has indeed come. So what, what, what is this idea? It's, it's what is the potential, what could you do if you took government's documents, if you took government information and were able to turn that into a data set? But we have to start with a tin can, um, as promised. For those listening at home, there's a picture of a tin can on the screen. The question, what does this can contain? Is there anybody sitting here in the audience, um, or if you're at home, shout out loud, if, uh, who can tell me without any hesitation, with absolute certainty, what's in this tin? No, right answer. People often try, which is ridiculous, because you really can't. Um, but, Graham, at the front, would you like to tell me why? Because there's no label on it. Thank you very much. Um, nice and clear as well for the microphone. <laughs> uh, I, that's the last of the audience participation. Um, there, is, there is no label on it. There is no way of understanding what the contents of this object are. There is no metadata attached to this object. So labels create very useful bits of information that enable us to understand what's in the content, what's in the tin. Gives us a title, tells us what it is, tells us who created it. Um, It gives us some information uh, probably pertinent to what's inside. So is there too much salt? Is there too much sugar? It gives us some usable user instructions, you know, microwave, don't microwave, use it with this particular tool or not. And it gives us a use-by date, tells us when the value of the content finally ends and it's time to throw it away. Disposal schedule. Um, Those of you who are already thinking, ah, this is the analogy, Mark's using a tin can as an analogy for a piece of government information or an electronic document, uh, are now ahead of the game um, and congratulate yourselves. Um, This is exactly what we're doing. So... We understand the content of the object because of the wrapper, because of the label, because of the metadata that we attach to it. I think the the reality is when we're trawling through the web and we're looking for things, uh, and certainly when we're kind of looking for documents and items and pieces of information, although search engines sometimes search the full text and the content if they can in certain ways, we actually end up making our decision about whether we're going to use that or investigate that piece of information further by looking at the wrapper, by looking at the information about it. That's really what we use to take and deliver that understanding of what it is we're going to do. 
So the metadata that's created about an object is really, it's absolutely key. It's, it's, it's how we understand the content of that object at the highest level and the level with which most of us operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, of course, when we go shopping and we're looking for our, for our dinner, uh, the, the foodstuffs that we're buying, um, we don't just walk into an empty room that's just piled up with cans and boxes uh, in the middle of it all and then expect us to kind of go rambling through and find all the stuff that we're looking for for dinner. We also organise it because supermarkets are about the availability of their content. It's about making sure that the right content is out there and available to the user, to the customer, who can then procure that and use it for the purposes they require, making their Friday night dinner. Um, and they help do that by not just having that kind of understanding of each of those different types of content, but also kind of structuring it in a really nice and simple way. So if we have, say, that's a tin of beans, we take all our beans and then we subdivide our beans and we've got kidney beans and pinto beans and black beans and cannellini beans and what have you, and we group them all together. Uh, and then we take a really nice sign and we stick the sign up in the ceiling that says beans with a big arrow pointing down. The supermarkets ensure the availability of that content and they ensure the understanding of that content so that the user can do what they need to do. And that is everything that you need to understand about information management. That's like six years of my life I just got rid of in kind of two and a half minutes. Um, everything else is technology and smoke and mirrors. So if we kind of hang on this kind of understanding, on this, this idea of metadata and metadata is delivering understanding of content. Because after all, that's all we're trying to do is understand what this stuff is, make a decision and then use it, consume it in the way that we need. So that's the first part of uh, this big idea. The second part of this big idea is then to look at concept of five-star data. You're familiar with the ideas of five-star data. You're familiar with the ideas of the five-star data model that Tim Berners-Lee... No. So, so Tim Berners-Lee developed a five-star model for releasing data, um, a bit like the little badges that you get on the fast food restaurants and the people who are serving you your chicken burger on a Friday night or, or what have you. Um, and it simply indicates the, the value and the usefulness of that data. So at the very bottom, you have one-star data, which is data that's kind of available in a fixed form that you can't really do anything with, you can't query it, um, but it's just there, so like a PDF and two-star data is it's a bit more dynamic. You can actually run queries over it. You can interrogate it, but it's probably in a proprietary format like Excel. Three-star data, which is what most organizations really now aspire to releasing, is data that at least is in an open format, so a CSV format. Um, and I know within the National Archives and the data, the data that we release, uh, we try and make sure all of that is at least released in a, in a three-star format. The jump to the fourth and the fifth stars is, is, a, is a pretty big one um, in, in terms of the technology and in terms of the potential. And underneath it all is a lot of very, very complex technology that I want to go into, um, partly because I don't really understand it quite in that very, very detailed level either. There are very, very bright people who do. Uh, I'm not one of them. But I do understand the essentials of five-star data, uh, and I want to kind of talk about it at a high level because this is about potential, this is about ideas, this is about possibilities. Uh, and the realisation of these ultimately is going to be 
led by people who understand and can deliver the technology and people who can understand and deliver the potential and the ideas, I think. So four-star data is about releasing data under what's called the RDF model, the Resource Description Framework. And it's, it's a way of writing your data um, to make it available through the web. So it's a way of writing your data that is really processed by machines rather than people. And then the fifth star is about taking that framework, the RDF model, and then about starting to make that data open to um, link between different organisations and different data source providers. So uh, we'll look at this and we'll give you a few examples because everyone's looking a little bit frightened right now. Um, so you model the data in a very specific way. It's about writing it in a certain way. It's about writing it in, in a way that meets the RDF framework. You really need to know much more about it than that. That's for the specialists. And we can make it available via a web interface so we can query it through a web interface. But what I think is really important about the idea of five-star data is... It's about describing the entities of the data. It's about giving each entity a description and a meaning that's fixed in time because it's given a unique resource identifier on the web. So if our entity is the National Archives, we put that meaning for what we mean by the National Archives, what it is, and we fix that on the web with a unique identifier, a web address that will not change ever. So any time somebody puts up a piece of data that links that mentions the National Archives, they can link back to that description. That will then link to other pieces of descriptions. You're beginning to create a way of mapping that meaning to other descriptions. So at a very, very, very high level, the National Archives is an, ident is, is, is an entity. The Public Records Office might be another identity. So we're simply able to say, and they call these triplets because they take two identifiers and then just add the meaning between them. The public record office is an early version or a preceding version of the National Archives. And that's it. At that really kind of high level, really, really quite simple. And then you can say the National Archives is an agency of the Ministry of Justice. And you're forming the links between these entities. And anybody who's putting their data out there on the web in the same way is able to link back into these entities, provide this meaning, and through the meaning you've delivered, and the people who link back to you, start forming the jumps down through all these different data sources. And what we'll do in a little bit, we'll talk about what that actually means within this idea of, of the document and document metadata. Because a lot of this work is being done in kind of local authorities at the moment. It's used to be doing, um, people know it best for delivering local authority services. Um, but I think we can kind of take this idea, take these ideas and use them to, and we'll have a look in a moment, support the way we understand and use and reuse documents across their life cycle and government information across its life cycle. So we're all kind of happy with the idea of Metadata, understanding, we're all fairly happy with the idea, at least the conceptual idea of what it means for five-star for linked data. Lots of nods, please. I haven't lost anyone yet. All those listening at home? So when you can map descriptions, you can then, as I said, map data to other sources. 
So let's go back to our, our tin can and our analogy for this can being uh, a, a document. Um, at the most basic level, we can look at this in terms of documents, simple things that we're very used to attaching metadata to, Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, what have you, PowerPoint. But ultimately, metadata is, uh, can be applied to any object, any piece of information. It's really about the way that you do that within the system. And the, the beauty of providing a way of simplifying the metadata and standardizing the metadata that you use uh, is, is you can then kind of enable that across any system. So this begins to not be just about something that's in, I don't know, something like SharePoint or something that's now Fresco or something that's on the web or something that's on Twitter. It, it begins to be a way of understanding any object because you're beginning to understand the, the way that we take a standard approach to all of these things. And all of this metadata, almost all the metadata, can be delivered by the system. So it's not even dependent on individual people making these decisions each and every time. Maybe the only decision that actually a member of staff, a government official might make is the title that they create for their document, maybe a few other things that they might need to decide. The beauty of this is, is you actually can control this at a governance level using your records managers, your information managers to, to help make these decisions at the business level and free staff up to, to carry on doing, doing the work that they do. So we have a department, and department does stuff. All departments do things. They have various tasks, activities that they perform. You could say that uh, it might be, oh, this department creates policy, this department looks at research. Um, you could look at it at a level of sort of specific areas. So uh, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, um, they do broadband, they do Olympics legacy, they do football, they do culture etc. So you can look at the sort of the, the thematic ideas maybe of what departments do. And these tasks are performed by teams, sets of people, units, project teams, whatever they might be. And this might become more important as departments start working with other departments or certainly when they start working in teams that use private sector contractors or, or work with organisations in the private sector or the third sector, voluntary sector. Um, and you're beginning to work with other organisations who are not part of your own department, beginning to sort of understand the nature of those teams. And of course, these teams create objects. And ultimately, it's the objects that we want that we're always going to come back to, whether it's us here at the National Archives, whether it's someone in a department looking for a piece of work that they're trying to find some information about. An object ultimately will have a title. It may have some degree of sensitivity about it, and it's important to think, certainly with the new protective marking scheme having come into play, simple things about sensitivity that, that might, you, know, you might want to indicate that maybe there's some personal information in there. It might have some financially sensitive information there. It might have a list of all the 007 agents in there, I don't know. And then it should have a disposal criteria. And... Most of us uh, in government should really understand the value of that information to us by the length of time in which we keep that information. And one of those elements of disposing of a piece of information is that it comes to the National Archives after 20 years. So this maybe is a framework for the kinds of high-level entity that we might use to describe our object. Um, it's open for discussion whether you think there should be more or less. This is just a particular view. Certainly most of these, I think from conversations with people, are uh, across TNA and across uh, government, 
people quite comfortable. These would help give you a fairly good understanding of your information. And they map to the sort of ideas, the bits of information we get on the tin can, on the label of a can. So we have a set understanding of, uh, a set way of understanding our information because we have a set of metadata terms that we're going to use and we're not going to deviate from and we're going to try and use those right the way across government for all information that's been created. And this is a piece of work that I've been involved in with something called the Metadata Standards Working Group about submitting this as a proposal to the Government Standards Hub um, to find a consistent way in which information is described so it can be understood in a consistent way. So we have a level of consistency in the way that we understand things. Then it's about finding a consistent way in which each of these entities is, is then described beyond that. So if we look at the idea for TNA, if we have a way of describing why an object is coming to us for permanent historical preservation, and that manner, again, in itself is controlled, it is the same described in the same way across every government department making these choices, then we start to have a way of understanding our content not in a sort of vertical way through particular series or through particular organisations, but we start looking at it in a kind of horizontal way, in a sort of thematic manner. And we do, we do have these. So... A year, two years or so ago, um, with the IMC team, we developed the idea of record selection criteria. And this is just a way of saying there are a set number of ways in which we can describe why an object is destined for historical preservation and how that decision maps to our records collection policy. Because all the objects that we take into the National Archives should in some way map to the records collection policy. So in having a way of describing these in a consistent manner across every object that comes to us, what do we start doing? So we have a way now of looking at um, all the kind of objects that come to us that have some relation to policy or to environmental policy, for example. And we begin to watch these and we can track these. We can now track patterns over time. We can use this to start understanding our collections, finding ways for researchers to interrogate this information in slightly different ways. So we have a, a controlled vocabulary, in a sense, uh, that, that we would use for this. Now, let's go back to the idea of taking this metadata and making all that metadata public, uh, available. Um, I was about to say publicly available. It might be that um, some of it would be in a kind of closed environment. But if we start taking all this metadata and we start publishing this as linked data, if you start publishing all these terms as, as in, in an RDF framework. So what we can now do is we start seeing that all of the information that government is creating, and it's being updated on a fairly real time in this database, and this is very similar to what the Norwegian government, so anyone thinks that, like, that can't be done. Um, the Norwegian government do this with their kind of giant registry, the... Um, uh, 
Uh, I can't remember the title of it. It's just escaped me. Um, the Norwegian government creates a registry of all the, the, the objects that are created, and, and they publish that in using this kind of idea of consistency and standardised metadata, allowing people to come in and actually seeing what objects and what documents are being created within the Norwegian government, and if possible, able to kind of call them for FOI purposes or to see what's already been published. If we are able to take all this data and, and publish that as a data set, for the National Archives, we can then start querying or looking at all of the information that is given a classification of selection for permanent historical preservation. And we don't have to wait for 20 years for that to happen. We can see that right from the point of creation. Because all of this metadata is being inputted by the system at the point of creation. So we can begin to take a very, very, very long-term view of the information that's going to be coming our way. We can do a pretty serious piece of planning around that one. We can start looking at themes, we can start looking at ideas, we can see where there might be information that actually we'd want to transfer early and start making some serious decisions about whether we do want all this information or not. We've got a much better idea of understanding it and much more time in which to watch it and follow it. If you think about the reporting that we go through, so the records transfer report um, that we publish every year for understanding the amount of paper records that are held by government, that information is already embedded within the system and within a reporting tool. No one needs to be going out now and start counting numbers of files and volumes of files because we just query the database because all that information is there and it changes on a real-time basis. So huge amount of value in just one single metadata field with a very kind of controlled way of describing those elements within that field. Um, and what, it, what it's able to do in terms of us being able to track information and in terms of our researchers being able to understand and query that information. But we're, of course, only looking for the National Archives at, what is it, roughly 5% of, of what government creates. Um, the rest of government is still kind of looking at all its information and using that and trying to ensure and enable the reuse of, of that information, those documents. So if we move through and we say we have a second department... And that department creates tasks and has teams who create objects. But they might have a very different way of describing the tasks or the kinds of teams that they have or the kinds of objects that they create. But because we've taken this data and we've published it, we've put it online, we've put it into an RDF framework and we have found ways of describing at very high levels, for example, the, the kind of activities, the kind of tasks we under, undertake, and we can map those tasks or teams or the objects, for example. If you're working in a government organisation and you're able to log on to this database and you're saying, I'm going to look for, so, I don't know, let's think, for example, the recent floods. So the Environment Agency will have created a great deal of information about floods and flooding. They might use a lot of very scientific terminology for ideas about flooding. Um, but you might have DEFRA, who are also talking about the impact on floods on the environment and farming. And they will use certain terms around that, farming impacts. You'll have the Department for Transport, for example, who might be talking about the impact of flooding on roads, but they might be calling it crisis management. But you can begin to map these terms across these different organisations 
So if you're in a department and you're saying, I really want to find some stuff out about flooding and what's going on with this, you can now begin to not only see where that information is within your own organisation, but actually see where that kind of information is being created by other organisations, by other government departments, even though they're not using the same words as you. Because you have a database which maps these terms together and which allows you to go in and find that content. In the long term, it might be there's more and more of our information is moved into the cloud. And the objects that we have, uh, that, that we're going to look at, have URLs to identify them with. My that we can go straight to those objects, download them and read them, rather than having to kind of request them for sharing. That's a much more kind of longer term view. So we have a consistency in the way that we understand the objects, a consistency in the way we describe them, and the ability to map those so that understanding is able to move between the different kinds of organisation uh, that creates them. And then over time, the department gets split and part of it becomes another department. Machinery government changes happen. But of course, all this information that we already understand about that, because it's mapped, because it's consistent, because it's understood, travels from the first department to the second department. And as it does so, all the relationships with the way we understand that information in terms of the other departments, travels with it. So this understanding travels with your piece of information as it moves from department to department throughout its life cycle. And if at any time you decide that one of your entities changes, if we go back to our record selection criteria and the way that we understand why an object is being selected to come to the National Archives, you don't scrap the old one and delete it. You just simply add a new element that says, rather than this, we now have this. Um, definition B replaces definition A. But you continue that linking, so that understanding continues to travel. So all of that information that we understand, the wrapper around our tin can, now travels with that object. It can travel through that object geographically as it moves around the world and it travels through that object as it moves over time through its life cycle to the time it comes to us and beyond that for as long as we're able to maintain and preserve that object, which is how, ladies and gentlemen, you turn a tin can into a TARDIS. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 7th of April 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>